turn again in God's Word to 3 John, and we continue in our, in our study that we began uh, this morning. This morning we saw a bit about this man, Gaius, to whom John writes, and we saw particularly that he was marked out by his walk in the truth. He was someone whose life was sincerely lived for the Lord. He walked with God. The truth of God revealed in the scriptures uh, had an outworking in his life. It affected his speech. It affected what he did, how he thought. And so he was commended. He was commended by those uh, who went out from John and who had returned to John. And we, were, we thought about how it's important that we in our lives live and walk in the truth. But the other thing we thought about was that Gaius was someone whose house and heart were open in hospitality. Here was someone who loved. He loved Christians, whether they were known to him or whether they were strangers to him. Whether they were from the same place he was from or whether they were from a, a far off land. As long as they came for the, as it says in uh, verse 7, for his name's sake, for the sake of Christ, he received them and he sent them on their way. He supported the work of Christ, the missionary work of the cross. And there's an encouragement there for us. That we can be fellow laborers, fellow workers for the truth, as much as we partner with those who seek to spread Christ in this world. I want us this evening, as we see in the rest of this epistle, there are two other men to think about. And one is evil, one does what is wrong, and the other is good and is commended. And we'll think more. Uh, about the one who is evil, the one who does what is wrong, because that is the one that John speaks more about. Theotrephes uh, is spoken of in verses 9 and 10. I wrote to the church, but Theotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does, Trading against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Theotrephes was a leader in the church. In this, we don't know where, where particularly John is writing to, but nevertheless, Theotrephes is a leader, uh, an elder, or a pastor in this place but as we see he is someone who is evil and is not to be imitated I think there are four marks in particular we're to notice here first of all Diotrephes loved to have the preeminence that is he wants to be first he wants to put himself first uh, we see that in, in verse 9 I wrote to the church but Diotrephes who loves to have the preeminence among them does not receive us. Here was a man who had authority in the church, an elder or a pastor, but he wanted more. He wanted to be first. He wanted to be above his brethren. 
He wanted to have his own way at all times. Here we see a first century AD power struggle within the Church of Christ. John is not here arguing against ecclesiastical authority. There must be authority, and there is authority in the church. Christ, when he ascended, gave gifts to men, and some of the gifts he gave were were leadership gifts, pastors, teachers, elders, those who, who would preach with authority, and those who would rule with authority. And these are good things, good gifts. But how often these can be distorted? And how often it's the case that someone gets the taste for power and wants more? And this happens in all spheres of life, doesn't it? Not just in the church, but in workplaces, in government, whether local or national. People get a taste for power and authority, and they want more. They want to push forward their agenda Uh, at at the expense of other people Uh, and we see that here Theotrephes was such a man he he ruled with an iron rod an iron fist in the church he wanted to be as it were a dictator telling everyone what to do and how to live he usurps authority from Christ remember in Matthew chapter 20 where the disciples had been discussing along the way who would be the greatest. And they were embarrassed, weren't they, to share with Jesus what they had been talking about. They knew they shouldn't have been arguing. They knew that their selfish ambition was wrong. But nevertheless, there was a part even of those regenerate men that desired to be over the others. Selfish ambition can be commonplace in the church. Paul writes about that in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing um, through selfish ambition or conceit. The example he goes on to show us is the example of Christ who humbled himself. He, He came into human form and not just any human form but he came into a low human form as a bond servant under the law and he humbled himself to the point of death. Jesus gives us the example of humility. Even on the night in which he was betrayed, what did he do? He got down on his hands and his knees and he washed his disciples' feet. He particularly tells us it's an example for us. And yet his followers can argue about which of us is the greatest. Theotrophes, however, takes this to an extreme. He goes further In fact, we see because of the assessment here that John makes that he is evil, we see that this is not a regenerate man like the disciples who who had the wrong priorities and could repent of it and, and change. This is a man who has done what is evil in the church. He has pushed himself forward so that he gets his way. This is a, as I say, it's a possibility in the church today, but... I think historically we see this in the Middle Ages. There was a biblical pattern of church government that was, that was followed more closely in the earlier centuries. Where there was a, an equality and a parity amongst elders. But over time there began to be a growing authority placed in, in bishops who were exalted above their brethren. 
The word bishop, I've told you before, is just another word for an elder. It emphasizes another part of the job of the elder. A bishop is an overseer. Someone who is tasked with overseeing the flock of God. Whereas a pastor is, is seen as someone who shepherds the flock of God. And an elder is seen as someone who uh, is to be looked up to and respected for, for their wisdom. These are all just different emphases of these various names that can be used for the office. But in the Middle Ages in particular, the office was distorted. And the bishop grew to be something more than an elder. And so we have the Episcopal system that grows out of that. And it reaches its zenith in the papacy. Where there is one man at the head of the church who can claim to be Christ's vicar on earth. His, his substitute, if you like. He is in the place of Christ on earth. And he can speak with uh, infallibility as he speaks from his chair and so we have that growing gradually these things don't just come out uh, all at once we know that in church history heresies sort of come out slowly there's a subtle change and maybe a change of emphasis a little change here and a little change there until it grows and grows and, and before you know it, uh, it it's become something which is as terrible as the papacy is. The biblical pattern is non-negotiable. Church government must be by a Presbyterian system. That is the only right way for the church to be run. I think there's a danger even in Presbyterian churches today that, that you can have people who become ministers and elders in the church who think that Presbyterianism is preferable to the other systems, a better way, a wiser way, and yet they, they wouldn't necessarily be willing to die for the principle itself. They don't think it, it must be Presbyterian. But friends, the biblical pattern is only Presbyterian. This is the way Christ expects and demands his church be run. There must be no man who is exalted over another in the leadership of the church. There's a parity. That means that uh, when the session of this congregation meets, each member is equal. Each member has equal rights. If something comes to a vote, each member has one vote. No one has two votes. No one elder is more important uh, that he gets his way. That's, that's the way it works. There's parity. But the atrophies here He didn't follow that principle. He's number one. He must have the preeminence. And so Diotrephes is someone that seeks to break out from the biblical form of church government and move towards the errors that we see in Roman Catholicism and Episcopacy. But friends, what he was doing was usurping the authority of Christ. Authority that, that, that is on earth is always limited authority and it's always delegated authority. The the elders of this congregation have real authority but it's not from themselves. 
It's not given to them by the congregation even, as sometimes people think Presbyterianism works. The congregation votes for them. Therefore, the congregation is giving them the right uh, to, to rule over them. It comes from Christ. All authority must come from Christ because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so when anyone seeks the preeminence in the church, they are stealing from the crown rights of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus alone must be exalted in the church. So let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. That's the first fault we see with theotrophy. And a very worrying one. Because as soon as you have a dictator in the church of Christ, there's, there's no limit to what he will try to do. And we'll see that. The second thing that he does is that he does not recognize John's authority. Look again at verse 9. John says, I wrote to the church, but Theotrephes does not receive us. John wrote, he wrote a letter, an epistle, but this was not received, it was not accepted. Now, in one sense, we could say um, that John and Diotrephes were both elders in the Church of Christ. And in one sense, you could say they were equals. Because well, what does Peter himself say? He says, I, a fellow elder. What happened at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15? There were apostles and elders there, but each had one vote. Each spoke their mind. And it wasn't simply that the apostles dictated what was done. The elders all participated and could all speak. That's the parity, the equality principle I spoke of earlier. But yet in another sense, we must recognize that John here is an apostle. And, and, and the apostles had a unique role in the Church of Christ. There is no apostolic succession uh, today. There are no apostles today. There's no one that can say, I stand here as an apostle particularly. No, the the apostles wrote for us the Scriptures. The, The Spirit of God brought to mind the things that Jesus had taught them. And they wrote them down on pages so that we have them. This is apostolic authority. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But Theotrephes here refuses to receive the authority of the apostle John. He doesn't want to listen. He won't listen to what John is trying to say to him. This is rebellion against authority. You see, as Theotrephes puts himself up to have the preeminence, he's really resisting lawful authority that Christ has given. Uh, and this could, could still happen today, of course. Um, there, the authority that is lawful authority in the church uh, can be resisted and rebelled against in ways which are unseemly. But particularly here, the example is of messengers coming from John and then being turned away and not received. When someone comes who is a minister in good standing in Christ's church, even within our own denomination, for example, we we can't just say, well, I'm going to decide I'm not going to listen to that minister. 
because they're not my preference or, or whatever. I won't receive them. I won't do good to them. I won't seek to help them or show hospitality to them because of some view I have. That doesn't seem to, to fit with the, the sense of authority that Christ has given to his church. We are to receive such who are in good standing. And that's the point here. Diotrephes is sitting, sitting there saying, these ones who are coming from John, although they are part of this Presbyterian system, they are, they are men in good standing, ministers of the gospel, yet for whatever reason, I won't accept them. In a sense, he's excommunicating them. He is saying they are not uh, Christians, or he's, we could say he's, he, he's uh, deposing them as ministers. I will not listen to them. But remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. He who receives you, that is the apostles, receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet receives a prophet's reward. You see, what is done against Christ's servants on earth is done against Christ in heaven. And what is done for Christ's servants on earth is done for Christ in heaven. He who receives you receives me. So that was the second fault in Diotrephes. His, he did not recognize authority. So that rebelliousness. And then thirdly, um, Diotrephes slandered, particularly slandered the Apostle John and those who came from him. Look at what he says here in verse 10. I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. Theotrephes sought to harm John and his reputation with his words. These malicious words are designed to wound him, to assassinate his character. But notice John calls it prating, maybe a word we don't use that often. We could translate it as babbling or chattering. These are words which are empty, nonsensical words. These are slanderous charges which are nonsense. They're empty. They cannot be substantiated. And yet here he is doing it nonetheless. And it's so dangerous because of the naivety of some people in the church. Theotrophies can bring out these baseless accusations against John. And someone in the church will believe him. Someone will accept them. Hook, line and sinker. And before you know it, the authority of the apostle has gone. It's not recognized. They're not listening to the word of God. They're not listening to these epistles which come their way. Because, because John in their mind is tainted. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 8 says, The wise in heart will receive commands, but a prating fool will fall. And then two verses later it says, he who winks with the eye causes trouble, but a praying fool will fall. That, that refrain, someone who babbles on nonsensically will fall. He will come to ruin. And so it would be for Diotrephes. These things happen today. We thought of that on Thursday evening. We thought about people's reputations and so on. These uh, people can slander and do harm 
in the Church of Christ. But remember, Diotrephes had a motivation for it. If he could put John down, he would have the greater preeminence and he would get his way. Beware of people who have selfish ambition because they'll stoop to any level in order to get ahead. But then the fourth sin involves Theotrophy's lack of hospitality. But it goes further than that. It's that he forbids any hospitality to to the messengers coming from John. And by doing this, he coerces the church of God to to bar up their homes and their hearts to legitimate ministers and missionaries. We see that here in verse 10. uh, Halfway through. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Now, elders are to be hospitable. That is one of the qualifications which is given in the Word of God. Titus chapter 1, for example, shows us that elders are to be hospitable. But Diotrephes, although he is an elder or a pastor in the Church of Christ, he refuses to be hospitable. He closes his doors. These visiting ministers have no place to eat and drink with him. But not only that, he goes further to wield the keys of the kingdom against anyone in the church who dares to open up their homes to these visiting ministers. How wicked this man is. My friends, there's nothing wrong with church discipline when it's faithfully exercised. In the church today, I've said this before, there's so much laxity in the, in the wider church that church discipline is often underused. It should be used. Purge the leaven from among you. Lest it leaven the whole lump. And yet it's not done. But here we see the overuse. Or the wrong use. The misuse. And the abuse of church discipline. That people are excommunicated. Put outside of the church of Christ. For what? What is their sin? Opening their homes. And opening their hearts. To the missionaries of the gospel of Christ. Those who come preaching Christ and giving hope to the world. The worst thing you can do in Diotrephes' mind is to receive them. Diotrephes not only forbids them to do this, but he coerces them. He puts fear into them. Here is a man who's not only a dictator, he's a tyrant. Isn't that what a tyrant does? A tyrant is someone that that, that makes you afraid to do what is good. You're terrified of doing what you know you should do and what your conscience tells you to do, lest you're punished for it. The Theotrephes' threats, no doubt, had their effect on some. But on others, they resist and they're put outside. They are excommunicated. And according to the eyes of the church, they are to be viewed as worse than tax collectors and worse than the heathen. Matthew Henry says, Woe to those who cast out brethren whom the Lord Jesus Christ will take into his own communion and kingdom. Woe to those who would do such a thing to cast them out when Christ would receive them in. So church discipline can uh, be underused but it can certainly be abused 
But John here speaks in verse 10. And he says he is going to deal with this situation. Diotrephes, who pushes himself forward into the preeminent position, who doesn't recognize authority but rebels against it and slanders the apostle and his messengers and who coerces the church in his inhospitality. John says, I will deal with all these sins. Verse 10, Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does. I will bring these to mind and I will expose him for his sin. I will expose him for the things that he has done because these things are evil and they're causing damage to the church. We can maybe uh, hear echoes of Paul here and his language in 2 Corinthians 13. I have told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. That is how sin must be dealt with. The evil of these people who have put themselves forward in the church when they have no right to do so, I will not spare. And if John did come, of course, he would deal with it. Friends, we're called here not to follow Diotrephes' example. We're to beware of it. And we're to beware of any who do uh, have that attitude in the church because of the harm it can do. But friends, I, I doubt many of us here are going to push ourselves forward into a position of authority in the church to try to be a tyrant or a dictator in the courts of God's house. But there are other ways in which we can be like Diotrephes. There are other ways that we can push ourselves forward to have the preeminence and to seek to be the greatest. I don't have to tell you that selfish ambition can come out quite naturally out of the heart of man. And all these things we are to shun and seek to avoid. We can uh, have some of these sins ourselves, maybe to a lesser degree, maybe with fewer consequences. Nevertheless, we're to guard against them. But then, more briefly, moving on to the second man, Demetrius. We have an example in Diotrephes of someone not to follow, but in Demetrius we have an example of someone to imitate. Verse 12, Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself, and we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true quite possible that Demetrius was the person who brought this epistle to Gaius. It's quite possible, uh, just there's a hint of it there in, in what John says, that he has a good testimony uh, from us. Um, but nevertheless, here is a, a man who is night and day different from Diotrephes. He is a man who has a good testimony. And a good testimony from three sources. First of all, he has a good Testimony from all. That, that almost means I could just say there's nothing more to say because if he has a good testimony from all, of course, that encompasses everything. But I think this is showing to us that he has a good testimony from, broadly speaking, generally speaking, he has a good testimony. In other words, he is above reproach. The elder, of course, is to be above reproach. Titus chapter 1 tells us that. He's to be blameless. Not 
that he has to be perfect because no elder is perfect. It's impossible for any man to be perfect. But blameless is a word that's, that's not quite so specific as that. There can still be sin in a blameless man. But it's a man who sincerely disowns his sin, repents of his sin, turns from it and pursues the Lord. A man who walks in the truth. And, and that can be seen, can't it? You can see that there are people who are not perfect and yet are still blameless. You can't bring charges against them. You can't fault them and bring charges against them in the courts of God's house so that they would be censured or anything like that. No, they have good testimonies. In 1 Timothy 3, again, the qualifications of an elder, it tells us he must have a good testimony among those who are on the outside lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Elders are to be thought well off by those outside the church. Now, of course, you can't take that to its extreme. There are going to be people out there who are going to hate elders simply because they're Christians. They're going to hate you because they see Christ formed in you. That's not what Paul is speaking about there in the qualifications of the elders. But he is thinking widely. In your dealings with uh, those who aren't Christians, are you seen as cruel or compassionate? Are you seen as someone who is fair and honest in your dealings with men? Or are you a swindler and a crook and so on? Are you above reproach? Or can the world bring accusations against you that would stand? That's the point. Demetrius here is someone who has a good testimony from all. Generally speaking, in the church and outside the church, he is well thought of. But friends, of course, we know that you can have a, a, good, a good testimony. You can be thought well of and yet not be a good person. It could be someone who compromises and be thought well off. It could be someone who speaks one way to one person and a different way to another person. And so everyone thinks well of you. Of course, that's not what's spoken of here. Demetrius isn't thought of well. He doesn't have a good testimony because he's compromised in any point of doctrine or practice. That's far from it. And friends, we know ourselves even that compromise won't make lasting friends. Because in the end, the truth will be seen. And the hypocrite will come out. So that's the first. He had a good testimony from all. It was evident that he walked in the truth. But then secondly, he has a good testimony from the truth itself. Look at what it says there, again in verse 12. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. Now what does John mean here by saying that? There's a good testimony from the truth. I think he means the word of God itself. Accusations could come against this man Demetrius and yet these accusations could never stand because it would be evident that Demetrius was someone who walked according to the word of God. The truth in that sense speaks up for him. Although he wasn't mentioned in the earlier parts of the Bible. Nevertheless, the truth would defend him. It defends his character. 
his reputation. It defends his practice. Because if you hold up the law of God to Demetrius, you would see that he has a good testimony. (coughs) Friends, isn't that what we hope for ourselves? That as we live our lives with a regard for the truth, as we thought this morning, to seek to walk by the truth, that the truth will testify to our sincerity. But then thirdly, Demetrius had a good testimony from John himself. Again in verse 12. And we also bear witness. And you know that our testimony is true. John and those who were associated with him thought highly of this man Demetrius. And that's why I think it's at least plausible that John had sent Demetrius with this letter. He gives it to Gaius, and and as Gaius reads it, he's seeing, the man who has given you this letter is someone that I think well of. I witness to his good testimony, and you know you can trust us. That's what John is saying here. His testimony is true. A respected pastor, a respected elder, a respected apostle is able to speak well of this man Demetrius. What a powerful testimony he had. What possible reason could Diotrephes have to refuse someone with these credentials? What possible excuse could Diotrephes make for his refusal to show any hospitality to Demetrius? What grounds could Diotrephes have for saying, I will excommunicate anyone in this church who opens up their homes to this man Demetrius. You see, everyone testifies to Demetrius' goodness, his sincerity. He's above reproach. The truth of God's word defends him. And John speaks with authority that he is a good character. Theotrophes has no reason or grounds to live as he does. But here we see that Gaius will do the right thing. Here is someone, as we thought this morning, who opens up his heart and his home. And John is confident. And friends, for us, as we think of those who are missionaries, as we think of those who are ministers, in your time of vacancy, as you'll have, uh, hopefully not for long, but you'll have visiting ministers coming and preaching to you, I hope that you will receive them. That you'll open up your hearts to them. That you'll listen submissively to what is the truth of God's word. That you'll open your homes to them. That you'll receive them in and give hospitality and love and care to them. But friends, as we partner with missionaries in the world, as we think of our own uh, missionary endeavor in the Gambia, what can we do to open up our hearts and to serve and help? Be fellow workers. Friends, surely we must follow the example of Gaius towards people like Demetrius rather than the example of Diotrephes. When we think of the Presbyterian system, the beauty of it is that there are ministers and missionaries who are endorsed and commended on a presbytery level. Ministers have credentials. Uh, We are certified as being in good standing with authority from Christ to teach. And those credentials can be removed from us. 
If, if we sin in such a, a grievous and serious way without repentance, our credentials can be taken from us. We can be suspended or deposed. But nevertheless, as ministers come with good credentials, with a good testimony, so they are to be received and loved and cared for. John here is encouraging the people to follow the good example and not the bad. And I want us just in conclusion to think of verse 11. Imitate, or beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has has not seen God. This is the point of the epistle. Imitate good. Don't imitate evil. All around us there are examples of good Christians. We have the examples of the scripture. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us Old Testament men and women of faith. Imitate their good example. Church history gives to us countless examples of people who were willing to live and to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. Learn from them. And today in the church around us, there are people we can learn from, from their example. But we must be looking to the right people, not at the hypocrites, not at those who are proud and arrogant like Diotrephes, not those who slander and are inhospitable, but rather those like Gaius that we thought of this morning and Demetrius that we see this evening. John is very clear here. There is evil and there is good. There are people who claim to be Christians and yet are evil and you must not imitate them. But there are others who are good and they are to be followed. And notice what he says in verse 11. He who does good is of God. But he who does evil has not seen God. In other words, if you see someone who is living a sincere Christian life, who is walking in the truth, who has a good testimony, that is an evidence to you, is it not, that that person has been born again, that that person has been regenerated and is a new creation, that they're not dead in their trespasses and sins, but they're alive together with Christ. But if you see someone who does not do what is good, but rather does the evil, well then surely our suspicions are raised that that person is unregenerate, still in their sins, and as John says here, they have not seen God. They've not truly encountered God as he is. Friends, it's an encouragement also for us to look at our own lives and to examine ourselves. Do you see good in your life? Or do you see evil? And if you see good, if you see a sincere attempt to walk in the truth, not a perfect attempt, none of us is perfect, but if you see a sincere attempt to walk according to the truth of God's word, surely that gives us the encouragement that he who does good is of God. Do you look into your life and does the word of God speak with conviction to your life? Does the word of God challenge how you live and show that you do evil? My friends, it says here, he who does evil 
has not seen God. We're called upon here to imitate the good and to neglect the bad. The Bible is full of calls such as this. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 12. Do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. There's an example of faith. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says of himself, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. He's saying, I'm trying to set you an example. I'm following after Christ and see that in me and follow me. Philippians 3, again, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. And then Ephesians 5 and verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Again, we're hearing that language of being born again. Dear children, born again. People are those who have evidence in their life of imitating God. I want to be very clear. Despite what the liberal church teaches us, we're not Christians because we imitate Christ. The liberal church makes the whole faith simply copying Christ. He's a moral teacher and we simply follow his example. The Christian is someone who simply does what would Jesus do. Friends, we know that's not what a Christian is fully. Because a Christian is someone who must first submit himself to the righteousness of Christ. He must first believe in the substitutionary work of Christ upon the cross. Because we know that by imitating Christ alone, we can never be good enough to get eternal life. Friends, just because the liberal church gets it so badly wrong, doesn't mean that we who have come to saving faith are not to imitate Christ. He is our example. He sets us the best example that there is. Do you want to know what it is to live a holy life? Look to the Lord Jesus, and he will show you. His word teaches you, yes, but look to him and what he did. Imitate him. And when you see someone in this world who is a Christian, and who lives a godly and an upright life, imitate them, because they are imitating Christ. Seek to follow them as far as they follow Christ. There may be points where you have to depart from. There may be points where you say, I can't follow that character trait. Because Christ would have us live differently. But nevertheless, imitate those who imitate Christ. And doesn't that show to us why fellowship is so important for the Christian church? I wonder your experience over the past couple of years where we have not had fellowship, as we would have liked to have done. Just ask yourself, have you felt your soul prospering, as we think in verse 2? Or have you felt the declension in the soul? I wouldn't be surprised if the majority of us here have felt some sense of declension, because we've missed the fellowship of being in the company of those who imitate Christ, and spur, spurring us on. How easy it is for us to grow cold in the faith. But when we're put next to someone who is imitating Christ. 
Doesn't it challenge us to follow him more closely? And that's the point here of this letter. These three men, four men, we could say John, Gaius, Theotrephes, and Demetrius aren't alive here on earth anymore. The particular pastoral problem has gone because these men are, are not here. But friends, similar problems like these are still on earth and still in the church at large. Take the decision to imitate the good. Take the encouragement that if you are imitating what is good, if you're doing good, you are born again of God. It's an evidence of that, an encouraging evidence. Because 1 John 2 says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Amen. Let's stand. O Lord our God, we thank you for this short letter found in the scripture. We thank you for what is contained in it and what it teaches us and how it shows to us very practically how we are to live our lives as Christians in this world. Teach us, we pray. Make us willing to listen to your instruction. Help us to walk in the truth. Help us to imitate what is good. And may we hate what is evil and always turn from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll conclude with Psalm 37. Psalm 37 and verse 26 to 34. Here we see a picture of the good man, the man with a good testimony before the Lord. We we see his his love for the brethren, uh, just as we've seen the hospitality here. He's ever merciful in lands. His seed is blessed, therefore. Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. Psalm 37, 26 to 34. Let's stand to sing. Oh,